Father Brendan Kilcoyne, coming to you again from Westport, County Mayo, and joined as usual by my colleague, uh, Father Gerard Quirk. Good afternoon. Uh, you're very welcome, Gerard. And um, we're, we're going to continue as we as we were last week, talking on this this um, avenue, if you like, this perspective we're trying to open up, which we've entitled the Brendan Option. Now, just to recap, you might remember that I, sp I, I kept returning to this metaphor of liquidity, this liquid quality, highly mobile, highly um, morphous, if you like, um, to modern uh, Western society. And for a whole load of reasons, the fact, the fact that it's Western gives it huge purchase right across the world. And we talked about Rod Dreher's idea of the, the Benedict Option. And the Benedict Option was, uh, as I summarized, a winter quarters. You know, you go, you go back to the monastic um, ideal. You, you, you start, go back to Ratzinger's idea of the creative minorities, establish stable, small communities, uh, hunker down, develop a subculture and work from there. It's a very, very interesting and thoughtful approach. Uh, it's richly, it's deeply rooted in the history of the church and has a great deal to recommend it. And then we went with C.C. Pecknell's um, very respectful critique of that, which he called the Dominican option, where you have this contemplative quality and you have this degree of stability, but it's also highly mobile, um, taking its inspiration from Dominic's uh, gifted um, uh, way with, with people and with theology and his ability his ability just in apologetics, his, his wonderful conversation and his, his loving, charming ability to attract people to the faith. And I suggested maybe a third option, a compromise with differences, putting a bit of, a, a bit of an Irish edge on it. Francis talks about having the smell of the sheep on you. Well, sheep stink. I know that coming from the west of Ireland. Sheep are not fragrant. They may look cuddly, but they are rarely fragrant. It's very difficult to live out on a mountainside and be fragrant. And, and, and so that's actually a very pungent image. It's a deeply earthy image. And I talked about humility as being of the humus, literally the Latin root of the word, of the soil, to be racy of the soil, as it were. And so we were looking at a third option, an option soaked in our Irish tradition and culture, in our very particular uh, Irish experience of Catholicism. Because while I admitted that uh, Irish exceptionalism indeed was very dangerous and we should be avoiding it, you know, we shouldn't have expected ever that Ireland would be immune to the huge changes that had happened in the last 200 years in Western culture. Yet at the same time, there was a definite quality to Irish Catholicism, a genuine talent for the, for the uh, elaboration on and exposition of the faith. And I'd, I'd go further, and I'd say, and I, I, I think I'm on solid ground here. You can, you know, but you can take me on on this if you want, but I really think I'm on solid ground here. I think the Irish have, a, we have a lifelong, and by lifelong I mean the long history of our people here. I'm not going to go on about race, extremely dangerous word. But the lifelong history of our people here, uh, we, have, we have this long love affair with the world. And I think that's part of the reason we produced all those magnificent illuminated manuscripts. Mm, yeah. What are they illuminating? 
You know, those splendid illuminations in the Book of Kells, as a character in Umberto Eco's uh, novel, The Name of the Rose, comments, um, so many brilliant colours from a land with few colours, uh, brown, grey and endless green. The illumination of the word and the exposition of the word. And look at all, I mean, even in our secular life, look at all the writers we've produced. The, the ones who early on, when Ireland was still remote and insular and deeply Catholic, um, like Joyce, who all his life was, was, was deeply marked and, and engaged by the Jesuit education he received, first at Clongos and then afterwards at Belvedere, two famous uh, Irish schools. You know, I mean, we've just produced this, this incredible tropical luxuriance of writers in the modern age. And I, I think part of it is this ongoing love affair with the world. We're, we're like bees, we're like wasps at a honey pot. We just can't leave it alone. We just cannot leave it alone. We keep going back to it. So why not play to our strengths? Do you remember I said the last time on this liquid ocean of culture? that is modern culture, on this limitless horizon. We need to get back to being shipwrights. We need to get back to shipbuilding. I would go further now today. I would suggest those ships will be made of words. Do you remember I said the internet? The internet is, is the riptide, it's the current in this ocean that we can catch yes, yes. to make headway. I would suggest that we will build our ship of words. And I would suggest that while the Irish are not in recent times, and recent times I'm going back hundreds of years, great, a great seafaring people, too obsessed with land to be a great seafaring people, too obsessed with property and land. At the same time, I would suggest to you that the sea is in our blood. We are surrounded by the sea. It's a powerful image and metaphor for us. I would suggest to you that we take to the sea again. I would suggest to you that we become gifted shipwrights. And I would, I would more than suggest, I would strongly, and I believe powerfully argue, that we are already gifted, that we are already, we already have many of the skills we need to do this. To build a new apologetics, which will indeed be more than apologetics. It will be, it will be a form of apologetics that's in the best sense of the word, on the offensive. It'll be directly engaging with the culture. Do you think that we need to regain our confidence as people of faith? Like that, Brendan, getting in his boat with, with his companions and just setting out into the ocean. Of like that ability to just to go where the Lord has commissioned us to go, that we go, not knowing where we're going. Do you Is remember, that part of it? Do you remember what happened to Peter when he tried to walk out to our Lord? Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, I love that. I love that image. It was more than an image, like uh, it's the inspired scriptural text. Like I, I, I believe that actually happened, and and he could have walked on it if he trusted God enough. And the Celtic, well, I'm going to use this word as a dodgy word. All right, the Celtic monks, the Church of the Celtic period. Let's call it that for want of a better word. The early Irish Church, right? Mm -hmm. It still had that divine madness. It still had that cracked willingness, that gambler's instinct. I once heard a, a brilliantly successful businessman. The, uh, I, I asked uh, somebody who'd known him, he'd gone to school with him as a small boy, and I asked him, what was the secret of that man's success? And he was from Limerick, the man who was talking to me. 
And he said, do you see those two flies there on the wall by? He said, he'd bet on those two flies going up the wall. <laughs> he, was, he was a gifted, instinctive, intuitive gut gambler with a tremendous gut reaction to business, to business deals. And business is the sea of, it's a treacherous sea to navigate, full of rocks, full of, full of wrecks, okay? And we have to discover the skills again, but what use, as you so rightly imply, what use will the skills be if we don't have the guts to use them? Mm. What use will the skills be if we build these magnificent ships that never leave the harbour? That just sit in the harbour or sit in dry dock? What use will that be? Mm. No, no, I think you're quite right. I think we have to rediscover the, the, that craziness of the early Irish monks, the white martyrdom, the going out into the utterly unknown, into the unlimitless horizon with no prospect of return. You don't even have to go back that far. I mean, you talk the 50s, the missionaries that went out to Africa and Which was Asia. a conscious and deliberate rediscovery. You're dead right. A rediscovery of the earlier. And they were totally conscious of this. Mm -hmm. go into, didn't we visit lately... Um, Dalgan Park. Oh, yeah. Oh, to break your heart. What a magnificent place. Built at the, the height of the, 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 the 20th century missionary outreach, the Manute mission to China originally. Uh, Bloick was from this diocese. He was a priest of our diocese. That's right. One of the founders of the Columbans. Uh, all the, the magnificent, beautiful work in the chapel. All Celtic revival stuff. They were obsessed with this stuff. And it, it, it was, the Celtic revival was tremendously fruitful. And my goodness, just go up to Newport Church and just wallow. I won't say look at, I won't even say enjoy. Just wallow unashamedly in the Harry Clark uh. East windows, the Lancet windows. I mean, if you're not careful, you, you, you'll end up starving to death like Narcissus, just, just, just obsessed with the windows. Okay, you'll forget to eat, you'll forget to go, they'll lock you in. Uh, it was a we, we'll talk more about it down the line. It was a tremendous rediscovery. Matt Talbot, one of the great uh, emergent saints of, of, of that early 20th century church, incredibly fertile time. Matt Talbot, Frank Duff, Edel Quinn, John Sullivan. My goodness, we can, you start naming them, the, the names just, just, just trip off your tongue of, of those people who will all soon, I'm, I'm convinced, be saints. Um, I, Matt Talbot, uh, an ordinary Dublin working man, had two of his spiritual directors were professors in Clonliffe, and um, uh, both, I think one of them at least, had interested him in the original Ir early Irish church and early Irish monasticism, and had told him that he was convinced that he had a vocation, Matt Talbot had a vocation to be one of those early Irish monks. That's part of the key to Talbot's personal asceticism. Matt Talbot's a very significant saint. Don Mark Kirby, I hope, I hope to goodness he doesn't mind me quoting him because I've quoted him promiscuously across the country and it was a private conversation. I asked him, I named out all these emergent saints. I call them emergent saints, right? I named them all out and I said, which of them is the most to say to modern Ireland? And he thought and thought and thought and he went dead silent. And then he said, I'd love to say Frank Duff. And we'll talk more about Frank Duff as the time passes, because Duff is an undiscovered gem, he's a genius. Uh, but uh, he said, I have to say Matt Talbot. He said, Matt talks to the broken heart of our time. He, he's, he's a broken man, and he speaks to brokenness. And God, 
God enters like an infection, a divine and benign infection through a wound. And that's crucial to remember. And if you lack the wound, you cannot be saved. That's a shocking thing to say. We'll be talking more about that as time passes. I know that's a scandalous and terrible thing to say. If you lack the wound, you cannot be saved. This is, good people should go home. They don't belong on this church. They don't belong on this boat. We don't want good people. This is a church for sinners. It is a club for scum. And if you're too grand for that, take yourself off and start the association of good and holy people who don't need to be redeemed. Flannery O'Connor, do you remember we mentioned her last week? Yes. And I said how gamey she was, like unpasteurized cheese. Ooh. Okay, yeah, she could disagree with you, but she should acquire the taste. She's an acquired taste. Flannery O'Connor, one of her characters, he, he, he rejects the faith and he founds a church, uh, I think it's the, the Church of, the church of um, Jesus Christ Not Redeemed or something like that, Not Redeemer or something like that. He founds an anti-church. Uh, I like that idea because I, I like people, even when they lose the faith, who make decisions. So we need to develop these skills. But what are the skills if we don't have the passion? What are the skills if we don't have the hunger? What are the skills if we don't have the madness? If we don't have that cracked willingness to be open to God? What are the skills if we don't have the wound? And what use is the wound if it just makes us bitter? And if we accept short-term solutions to it? Some of the best stand-up comedians in the world are terribly wounded people. Watch, I'm not going to name names, just watch a few of their faces when they tell jokes. They're on the edge. Just as a certain comedian, an absolutely gifted comedian who was in an absolutely brilliant and enduring and classic comedy series set in a hotel, I think, in Brighton or somewhere in England. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, back in the early 70s, he was never as funny again. He was, he was so depressed, apparently, at that time that he was close to the edge. He got a load of therapy and it went really well and he was never funny again as far as I'm concerned. He spent the time since laughing at his own jokes. It's, 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 the edge is crucial. The wound is crucial. Norman Mailer in a fight with the, with the novelist. A novelist I enjoy, Gore Vidal. I enjoy him more than Mailer. Gore Vidal was polished, southern, patrician, um, an elegant man, a man who's had an incredibly lucky life. Um, and they, they had an awful row, and Mailer was the tough New York East Side Jewish writer who come up from nothing, and Mailer shouted at him, you, you, you'll never be a great writer, never, never. Now you'll never be a great writer because you lack the wound. And Vidal said afterwards, it went through him like a sword, because he said it was true. He said he had such a lucky life. You, you must suffer. You must suffer. That, that's why I say again, people who regard the church as a ship for good people do not understand Jesus Christ and are in danger of their souls. You must have humility. You must come to God. God is not asking you to lick the floor in front of him. God, God himself is waiting to wash your feet. But how can he wash your feet if you don't let him? You know, you, 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 you must realize that you, that you need him. Now here we go back to the liquidity and the sea and the water and the limitless ocean of modern culture and society. Zygmunt Bauman, the sociologist, um, 
died a few years ago. I think he was a professor at the University of Leeds. He had a fascinating life. Bauman was Polish. He started out a communist, a Stalinist. He worked in the Polish communist secret police, although he always said later he didn't arrest anyone. He only had a death job. He then went on to, he was kicked out of communist Poland because his views were regarded as heretical and he ended up a, a professor, I think, in the University of Leeds. Highly respected academic. Bauman coined a phrase, which is the title of a book of his, published, I think, in 2000. You can look it up. It was republished again in 2012. Liquid modernity. And that is a crucial phrase for us. Now, we, we should be listening to these secular prophets because I'm telling you, we make too clear a distinction between the sacred and the profane. God is at work everywhere. There is a distinction between the sacred and the profane. Liturgically, it has to be made, okay? There is a distinction, but you must take it in its place and understand it. Ultimately, and this is not pantheism, God is everywhere, Lord and master of everything. So anyone who's not against us may well be for us in some way. Even Marx has something to say to us if we calm down and listen. Just be careful, as John Paul II had to keep reminding us, having grown up in a communist society and seen where that leads. But we still have, there, there is still stuff to be learned there about the way in which, for instance, one can become, uh, one of the key Marxist uh, insights is alienation. One becomes, you know, the worker becomes alienated from the product, from the, the value of his work, everything. He just receives a wage. He doesn't receive the value of his work. Um, all, the, all the rest of it. That idea of alienation is crucial to understanding modernity. I don't question that. And if anything, it has just got deeper and deeper. Hence the neo-Marxist stuff about identity. This is the wreckage to which you cling when everything else has sunk. Mm -hmm. Okay? When all else fails and you don't have a soul and you don't have a future and you don't, you, you, you don't, your life doesn't have meaning, you, you settle for an identity. It's the poor man's heaven. Okay? <laughs> That's the best I can say to it. And I, I, I'm perfectly willing to take dog's abuse for saying that. In fact, I've enjoyed that so much, I'm going to say it again. Identity is a 15th rate substitute for Catholic anthropology and for a proper understanding of yourself. Identity is our shabby economy version of the reality that we are in the eyes of God. So when somebody gets annoyed with me, they'll say to me, that's totally unfair, you call yourself a priest. Yeah, and I, I, the few times I've had a chance, I love answering, I don't call myself a priest. I don't have to call myself anything. God calls me a priest, which of course causes murder altogether. <laughs> They're doubly enriched. <laughs> but it's, God calls you a baptized Christian. God, God calls you, you, even if you're not baptized. He calls you, you. You don't have to become yourself, and you don't have the option of making yourself. The creator has made you. It is up to you to, how would you put it, let him reveal yourself to yourself. The you he envisions, and, and, and that is the truth, the true you. Back to liquidity, although the whole identity thing is it's the sort of stuff that passes you in the water in the, in, of liquid modernity. In the, uh, Bauman quotes, uh, Marx uh, and Engels in the Communist Manifesto, where they talked about melting the solids. So this, this agenda has been going on for ages. You go right back to the French Revolution. 
Okay, Cardinal Connell, the late Cardinal Connell, used to be much mocked because if an argument got heated, he would go right back. He was an academic, a philosopher, but he was perfectly right to do so. That's not that far back in the history of the West, Western world. It's not far back in Chinese history, either, the history of any of the great civilizations. This has been going on for ages, and, and Marx consciously, they consciously talked, used the phrase of melting the solids. And what were the solids? The solids were family. The solids were the state, as it was then conceived, were family. The social order of the time, property, all these things. These were the solids. Friendship, as it was understood. Community and communal loyalty. You know, people often wonder how Italy survived with I don't know how many successive governments after the war. It just seemed chaotic if you looked at it. Yet Italy was a perfectly well-functioning society. Anyone who's lived there for any length, which I did at one stage, knows that. The Italians are, are deeply civilised in a way we never were. If it weren't for Christianity, we'd have been complete barbarians. But the Italians are deeply civilised. How, how did they get by? They got by because while their overall national polity was dysfunctional, they were terribly good at personal relationships and local and communal identity. So I heard one old woman in Rome say, I'm not Italian. I'm not Italian, I'm, I'm, I'm Roman. So she said, I didn't want to know about that. She said, I'm a Roman. She said, that's, that's just the government, il governo. That's just the crowd, the crowd and the government. I'm a Roman. I'm a Genovese, I'm, I'm Sicilian. Now, these are absolutely crucial relationships. So the Marxists had very early pinpointed what had to be melted. If you were to go back to year zero, although they didn't use that phrase, it was used chillingly in Cambodia, in a Marxist experiment, which is und was undeniably Marxist. You see, Marxism cannot disown. We can't disown the Inquisition. Marxists cannot disown Stalinism. Stalin was a, a loyal communist to the day he died, with the blood of some anything between 20 and 40 million on his hands. Mao was a communist. These, these people were communists. One of, one of Stalin's biographers, Stephen Kotkin, the, the American Stephen Kotkin, who's probably the greatest living authority on, on Joseph Stalin, said that the astonishing thing when you get into the secret records that from about the early 90s started to become available from the Russian state, that when you get into the secret records and you read what the Politburo, the governing council, were saying among themselves, is that they were, wait for it, communists. <laughs> they actually believed it. Right to, the, right to the day he died, he was a communist. So they can't disown this. They can't. And Bauman comes from this. And they, they had planned this melting of the solids. And so the destruction of the family. What's so, the aim in that? The aim in that was to create a, a homo novus, uh, the new man, homo sovieticus. This would be a new... It was dreamt of already in the, in the French Revolution. This would be a new man, homo sapiens, would be taken to a new level. Homo sapiens literally meaning simply uh, uh, thinking man or uh, wise man, man the wise, right? This would be taken to a whole new level. Homo sovieticus would live completely for others, altruistic, completely for others. And the state would gradually melt away and there would be communist heaven. There would be heaven on earth.
Now, of course, this is a problem in that it doesn't answer a whole load of, or rather it does have very chilling answers to a whole load of, of, of human problems. And uh, one of those problems is that humans have, have very deep and strange and difficult needs in this strong, dark meat of, meat of reality, as Churchill, or as Chesterton talked about it. You know, as the human nature is pungent, right? the smell of the sheep, the sheep are pungent. Human nature is febrile, it's dark, it's powerful, it's smelly. It's, it's, it has a strong evil side to it. Human nature isn't easily tamed like that. So what do you do if you're going to, if you're going to make people perfect? Well, I'll tell you what you do. Saint-Just, the, the, uh, the French revolutionary, said it. He said it uh, 50 years before the Communist Manifesto, I think. Um, and he said it uh, about 120, 130 years before the Great Soviet Terror, which put the French terror in the shade. It is a terrible thing to torment the people, but what choice do you have if you have decided to make them gods. You end up killing people. And I mean you end up doing some serious killing. But it's all for the good because of this great society you're going to build with perfect people. And of course they discovered that people don't want to be made perfect. Uh, people, people are very complicated and they ended, up, they ended up killing a load of people. And on top of that they had completely undermined the family. They had introduced abortion on a massive scale. They had completely um, instrumentalized sexuality. They had completely um, wrecked uh, social relations. They had made people squeal and rat and inform on each other, which is why I get nervous about even these, these secret lines, these confidential lines for, for telling on people who are dodging their tax. You know these lines they do? I, no, I, I, I really worry about that stuff. Okay, and I'm not defending tax avoidance. I pay my taxes, but I, I worry about that stuff. I'd nearly prefer to have to carry a few tax evaders than have people ratting on their neighbours all the time. That is very dangerous if you start that. It's very dangerous. But they did it. They wrecked personal relationships. Yeah, I, I, I would worry a lot about, about that kind of, a, that kind of a, a culture. If you get time, watch that wonderful German film. It's about 10 years old, uh, The Lives of Other People about life in East Germany, which was, of all the communist states, the worst. They, they're almost psychotic. There was something almost weird. There was something actually very weird about the, the fortune that was being spent simply on surveillance. The most detailed surveillance of people in their personal lives. The state was spending a fortune, a fortune every year just on that, just on watching people, uh, and, had, and had developed it to a, to a science, um, practically. Now here's the thing, and, and this, 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 is, this is what's frightening. I don't think there's any need to worry about communism too much anymore in terms of communist states. No, no, because I think what has happened actually has gone beyond all that. That's reinvented itself. Oh, what has, what, what has come is something much more febrile. It's much more mobile, less ponderous. It is, it is truly melting the solids, I'll tell you. And it, 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 has, it has operated easily in the, for want of a better term, the capitalist West. It has operated through materialism, it has operated through the selfishness that has been generated with that. And look, I like nice things, okay, I like my few quid, I'm not coming the Puritan on this. I just 
there has to be a limit to that. You must, the human being must stay in the driver's seat in their own lives. There must be a master in the house. You, you, you cannot hand your life over to things. And you can't hand your life, and if you're going to hand your life over to a future, it must be to a future that irradiates the present with meaning. It must be a future that actually is of the present, that explains the present and is true to the present and the present, the, the present then can be gradually made true to the future, if that makes any sense. It, it cannot be simply just to any false prophet who happens to wander by on the road looking for a cup of tea. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a difference between interest and meaning. Yeah. We can have interest in all these material things, but it does, they don't bring meaning. There you go. That only comes from God. Yeah. Well, the trouble is, you see, you melt the solids, there are no new solids. Mm -hmm. I mean, Stalin actually, this crossed his desk. Everything crossed his desk. Unlike Hitler, Stalin was a very hard worker. Hitler really only worked really hard on his speeches, and then he worked very hard towards the end of the war just on, on military matters, most unfortunately, because he wasn't much good at it, and he kept interfering with his generals. Or at least that's one argument, anyway, for the way they lost. Um, Stalin actually was an excellent, he was, a, he was a superb administrator. He was a superb corporate man. And he, he had these coloured pencils, and nearly, an incredible array of documents crossed his desk. He worked at all hours of the night. Um, and had a remarkable photographic memory almost, prodigious memory, and tremendous grasp of, of, of detail. And they had this big campaign, and the hero of the campaign, I can't remember his name, he was this, you remember the, the hero of the long work, working day was Stakhanov. So if you could work that day, and, and he did this incredible working day under highly controlled conditions, like an Olympic athlete, like, I mean, if you worked this day, you were a Stakhanovite. Okay, you got medals and you got all sorts of concessions. Um, the, 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 the hero, another hero was this kid who ratted on his parents. He ratted out his parents, right? He squealed on them that they said something about Stalin. And the parents were sent to the camps, right? And uh, I mean, if you don't believe me about this stuff, read, now we'll talk about this guy again down the line because we have to talk more about him. Read your Solzhenitsyn. Read Solzhenitsyn. Jordan Peterson never stops on about him. Read, read, I read some Solzhenitsyn when I was about 14 or 15. made a huge impression on me. Read what they, what they did. And the parents disappeared into the camps. And the kid was a hero right through the country. I think the Nazis might have done similar stuff. The kid was a hero. But when the, the documentation, they were going to give him some big award, I think, across Stalin's desk, Stalin read it and he said, uh, forgive me, he said, what a little shit, he said. <laughs> Imagine doing that to your parents. <laughs> And he signed the letter and passed <laughs> Your man, they had the whole thing. Said that like, even he, who apparently had a happy enough childhood, contrary to what we thought for a long time. He, and he studied for the priesthood, did you know that? Yeah. For five years. Studied for the priesthood, and apparently he was very bright, and it did well. <laughs> if you were to start on this stuff. Because, of course, Marxism, and here we're coming to the crunch, Marxism is the unacknowledged child of the Judeo-Christian tradition. It's the product of, of Western liberalism, and liberalism is the, is, the, is, the, is the child of that tradition. Not only unacknowledged, but the child who doesn't want to acknowledge his own lineage and parents of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Mm. It would be very hard to think of the Western liberal tradition, because remember, Greek democracy was a very different thing to what we talk about. The Greeks were slavers. Yeah? The Western liberal tradition is it's very much dependent on the Christian understanding of the value of the, of the person. So what are we down to now in this liquidity? We've melted everything. It melted even the Soviet Union, 
which melted everything to congeal into itself, but ultimately, simply, what was going on? Modernity was too strong for it. You could use a whole load of reasons for the fall of the Soviet Union, but it was in an awful state when it fell. It was already in an awful state, right? It had failed morally, it had failed spiritually. It was, it was a wreck. And what have we now? We have this liquid modernity with no solids. The family banjaxed to a considerable extent. I'm sorry now to, to use these terms, and you're perfectly entitled to come back at me and say, you're panic-mongering, you're all this, you're this, you're that, you're the other. I think it's very important that I say this stuff. As a priest, I say it, and then fine. If I have to be pulled up or corrected, or I'm, I'm overdoing it on some things, that's fine. That's, you know, that's part of the discussion. I mean, w one of the most honest people in all of this is, is, is the, uh, a woman who wasn't a great writer, but she's quite quietly read by a lot of people, is Ayn Rand, the, the American, formerly Russian, um, founder of, of the philosophy no, she called objectivism. You know, she was completely against God, she was, com you know, any idea of God, but she was also terrifically anti-communist. She believed that people were only out for themselves and that that should be consecrated and elevated, and that others have no claim on you, and that's the end. How bleak. Yeah, how bleak, that's right. It is bleak. It's as bleak as the communism that she escaped in Russia. Mm. It's as bleak as it, I, I, I would feel. Now, I only read one of her books, but it, it's a long enough book, The Fountainhead. Another one is Atlas Shrugged. And what, what we have here is, it, it's certainly not completely liquid. It, how will I put it? It's, it's clotted. Thank God. It's not completely liquid. It's mercifully lumpy, this modern porridge, this custard. And the lumps are what's left of our social relations, of our altruism, of our love of each other, of our willingness to commit to stable relationships over time, of our pietas in the classical sense, our recognition of the fact that we owe a debt to our parents, which is unlike any other debt, that the relationship is unlike any other, and that even if your father or mother were abusive beyond belief, and you have to get a, a million miles away from them, you can never renounce them. I think, is, is Himmler's daughter still alive? I think she is. I think Barman's son is still alive, Martin Barman. I think he was a priest for a while. Uh, which denomination? I'm not sure. Wait, like Stalin's daughter only died a few years ago, Svetlana Jugashvili. Uh, yeah, she only died a few years ago. Father is father, mother is mother. You cannot break that link. If you turn on them, you can turn against them, you can push them back, you can critique them, criticise them, everything. But if you turn on them, the Greeks believed the Furies would pursue you to your death, which is a way of saying, I suppose, your conscience. That relationship is primitive, primeval, it's, it's, it's primordial, it's there, it's there right in your bones, in, literally in your DNA. And the relationship even to adoptive parents is profound. The relationship to anyone, the relationship to those who taught you when you were young should be reverent, even if they were a right blank, which some of them might have been, okay? There must still be respect. Now you abandon that, where are you? And you see, all those small relationships, they're like the scutch grass that holds the sand dunes together. And we know from what's happening on our coastline, what happens when you start uprooting all that stuff? What happens when you take all the stones away? What happens when you start messing with something that's holding the whole thing together? 
It's like knocking down walls in a house. So for God's sake, if you start knocking down walls, the, the, the first thing you need to inquire as to what, what's the wall holding up? <laughs> Otherwise, you may have no wall and no house. Okay, is it a bearing wall? So it's very dangerous to start mucking about with things that have always been there. That needs the greatest care. And that's why I'm, I'm what I, I suppose what I'm coming to, okay, I'm dragging my feet towards my conclusion, but where I'm getting to here is that I think inevitably, I don't see how you can be a Catholic and not be a conservative. Okay, Cam, 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 okay, please don't start breaking up the furniture, okay? No windows broken, no need for a riot. I think a liberal, if they're real liberal, will always be partly a conservative. They're lit, I'm not talking about reactionary, I'm not talking about saying, oh, no change, no change. That's childish. Change is a part of life. Conservatism is all about how you manage change. Mm -hmm. And change should be managed slowly, carefully, thoughtfully, reverently. The old Anglican uh, ritual for marriage had the most gorgeous, the, the, the language in the old Anglican book of common prayer is just the English, it's just beautiful, like the King James. But uh, th that marriage shouldn't be entered into precipitously, but, but oh, I can't remember the words. I, I, I've been at a few Anglican weddings, but there's, there's, there, there's a list of them, you know, considerately, thoughtfully, you know, whatever, uh, all of those. No, you, you, you do that very, very carefully. You make changes carefully. Yeah. Otherwise, you end up with liquid modernity. A liquid modernity is causing massive crisis. Crisis, it's, it's, why do we have to go on so much about mental health? It's because we have removed so many supports to mental health, mm. partly, I would say. And we have introduced an absolutely crazy notion of self-actualization and fulfillment. Whereas the, the church has always taught that you can't self-actualize because that's, a, a cre that's creation. You can be enabled to self-transcend. And in that sense, you can, self you, can, you can actualize. But you are actualized by God. There's no coincidence in my mind when belief in God and all those structures that you speak of are, are being melted, yet at the same time, the rise of depression, suicide, anxiety is going through the roof. Yeah. There's no coincidence there. Yeah, liquid modernity. Yeah, liquid modernity. People are drowning. People are drowning in 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 in, the, in this ocean. There's nothing to cling on to. There's nothing that rings true. Mm. There 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 are no seaworthy vessels. Yeah. It's it's it's, an, it's it's a very very dangerous time. It's a very dangerous time because history teaches that where you that you have no vacuums. And where you have anarchy, you always will have tyranny. And consider that in all of this, what is becoming powerful? Well, the only thing that's becoming really powerful, because the melting of the solids has gone on and on, the scandals of the church were used as a, a, a pretext in a way. All right, now maybe I'm being or too conspiracy-minded here. I'm not thinking of conspiracy. I'm just, as I said before in the last talk, I can't help feeling that some people found all of this very useful. The scandals of the church were a great pretext for reducing the capacity for self-government of the church. Scandals in the professions are a great reason for reducing their capacity of self-government. The law society, oh, you know what I'm talking about. A lot of the professions, the medical council are, are self-governed. But this is very healthy. The church has always believed in this subsidiarity, is that if at all possible, the most junior local authority should solve problems. 
to keep society healthy, keep people making decisions, keep people responsible. Now, one of the fathers of modern English education, and by implication Irish education, because what we don't admit is that even in modern independent Ireland, we never take our eyes off, off what the English are doing in education, for better or worse. The English would tell us that we've gone on to make all of their mistakes. Uh, I, hear, I, hear, I hear that from English people. Uh, they're very amused by it. The father of that, well, Many people would regard him as the father of it. He, he isn't really, but his major figure was Arnold of Rugby, the famous Dr. Arnold, who was regarded as the founder of the English public school system. But Arnold's insight was hardly, um, one of his insights was hardly um, revolutionary or groundbreaking. He regarded adolescence, he was a very serious evangelical churchman, an Anglican, evangelically minded. And he regarded adolescence as a time of evil and sin. <laughs> Uh, he regarded boys as basically half-tamed savages <laughs> who'd eat each other if they were given half a chance. Now, there's a grain of truth in it. <laughs> okay, there is a grain, if <laughs> you've ever taught. Very unwise to forget it. And, and he, he abolished adolescence, as it were. And what did he do? He said, just give them responsibility. Get them involved in running the place. So he made prefects, and you know all this stuff get load responsibility onto them so that you produce... Remember England had an empire. He said, you produce people who can be relied on later to run things and who also can use their heads and won't panic in, a, in an emergency. we well, get on with it. They were looking at, at producing an imperial civil service, people for the army, people for the civil, colonial services, all that. I think that that's, those are among the skills that we need to be fomenting, is in this liquid modernity to be rediscovering, number one, independence. Now, independence is a difficult thing to be because a lot of what's called nowadays modern independence is just singing in a different choir. It's a different set of chains. It's just the chains of fashion and public opinion. As Solzhenitsyn pointed out in Harvard, in a famous address in Harvard Square, I think it was in 1976, where he said he was so relieved to be out of the Soviet Union, where he had lived for so long in a society without laws. Okay? And then he turned the guns straight on the West, in front of his host. And he said, you are living as slaves to fashion. You are letting yourselves be dictated to by the media. 1976, he went down through the list, named it off. So he said, are you free, he said. Are you free? Of course, Solzhenitsyn had rediscovered, like Dostoevsky, uh, had, had rediscovered his faith in, in, in I think, prison. Mm. He was sent to prison for saying something about Stalin in a letter to his girlfriend, I think, or something like that. You know? He'd give out about the way the war was being run. He was an army officer. So he, he, here we are. We're in liquid modernity. We're having to build the ships. We're having to rediscover the skills. We have to, first of all, rediscover uh, the courage, the passion, the willingness to genuinely steer our own course. Because independence is a lonely place to be. Secondly, we have to ask ourselves, is there hope? Is there land to find? Is there meaning? Is there a future? Because this is crucial. Mm. Okay? And if I have the skills to survive in this, and if there is a point to surviving, and I'm not just like a desperately fighting to live. I'm not like a mouse in a wheel, just endlessly turning the same wheel. But there actually is a point to life. Then we're, we're in business. 
if we have the skills to build a ship and that we know where we want to go with it, then come rack, come rope, come, come terrible storms, come terrible dangers, rounding the Cape of Good Hope, come, come the most utterly, absolutely bone-meltingly frightening experiences ahead with dragons on the path and all the rest of it, use all the images you want, that will sustain us. That will give us the strength to keep going, but those, those questions are crucial. And in this liquid modernity, you cannot trust what's being said to you by the passing whims of the time. How much did you hear about identity politics in the last few months? Yeah, every day. Here we come to another crucial point. In liquid modernity, you have a crucial and disastrous separation from what Aristotle would have called the telos and Aquinas, the purpose, the point that there must be to every act, the point what you wish to achieve, what you wish to do. And the act can't be human if you don't at least minimally know it, understand it, and will it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's just an involuntary act like swatting a fly away from you. So what's our point? And liquid modernity has, has divorced us from the telos because there is no purpose. Hmm. You go into a funeral now, the, 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 the liveliest looking often, the best looking and the, and the healthiest looking individual in the, in the whole funeral parlour would be the corpse. We've learned how to make, people are made up as if they look great. I've seen people laid out in their glasses, which is hard, I mean, out of thought superfluous at that stage. They, they look great. No, I'm not, I'm, not con I'm not judging anyone for this stuff. I'm not condemning anyone. I mean, we've done it in our own family. And, and I've been grateful to the undertaker that somebody was made look so well. Why am I uneasy? Why am I mentioning this at the risk of hurting people? I'm mentioning it because it's bloody dangerous. I'm mentioning it because we're getting very good at pretending the death hasn't happened. When I was a kid, the grave was filled in in front of everyone. Eh? So you either had a tea loss or you hadn't. By crikey, you knew it. You were standing there on the edge of the grave, literally on the edge of experience. Do you remember in the last talk I said, that's where we are anyway. It's just nowadays we know it. You were standing there and the clay started to be poured in and it was filled in by friends, relations, traditionally. The grave was dug by your friends and filled in by your friends. A few of them might have enjoyed it a bit too much, but there we are. There's nothing you can do about that, depending on what you did to them. <laughs> And it was filled in there and the family, you know, would be disconsolate and weep and it was cathartic. And you were clear on what had happened. Yeah. The community brought you into the reality. They did. And then we became posh. And the undertakers started to be trained in abroad, in England, America, whatever. They were influenced by up in Dublin. They were influenced quite understandably. Again, I'd say my family had benefited from this. And... Uh, now, then you had this little strip of artificial grass that's just put over things, so nobody has to be upset. You go off to have a drink, and somebody says, what, have they gone to sleep? Have they gone deepy by, gone for a little nap? That's not a bloody toothache that they have there. And it's not a toothache you have either. Your soul, a friend of mine said to me after his mother was buried, he's, he, he said, I've buried, a bit of my heart has been torn off, and it'll never heal. And that's the truth. What a beautiful thing, though, to be able to say. That's when you know you're a man or a woman. That's when you know you're human. You feel the wound. You love, you hate, you... you does this make sense? You, you engage with life. You have taken the risk of loving. And you have not just dissolved in the liquid.
like a lump of sugar in warm water, like the proverbial boiled frog. You know, where the water is made warm and then warmer and warm. By the time it gets dangerously warm, the frog is stupefied by the warmth and is too weak to get out of the water. Business people use it to describe how a business can go wallop very quietly out of small things. I want to introduce you to somebody who's not a Catholic, although he had Catholic relations and he was often accused of being a Catholic when being a Catholic was still a little bit dangerous and certainly unfashionable and no help to your career. But he's very Catholic and he's a big hero to a lot of Catholics and he's a big hero. He is the patron saint of conservatives, a secular patron saint. And as I said, how secular is some secular? You know, there's a bit of sanctity in it, right? I want to introduce you to somebody that every self-respecting Catholic, whether they're conservative or liberal, whatever you want, should know and appreciate to that consummate, that great Irishman, and that consummate parliamentarian, Mr. Edmund Burke. 200 years ago, absolutely appalled by what was happening in France. Himself, a liberal man, eh? a great believer in parliamentary democracy. Bork warned and warned what these revolutions would bring. And he talked with reverence and love and gratitude of the small ways in which society was held together, in which people found meaning and had their identity revealed to them. And he called them the little platoons. Now the modern British philosopher who died only a few months ago, much lamented, Roger Scruton, a conservative British philosopher revered Burke and would have been deeply influenced by him. And he often quoted him on this, the little platoons, the GAA, an incredible organisation, you know, huge, ramshackle, dysfunctional, a work of social genius, absolutely social genius, built on the games of a defeated and despised people. Remember that the way in which a people rose from the ashes. They may not even, I don't know, how Irish is Gaelic football. It's an interesting question. To what extent is it an Irish version of soccer? Hurling is definitely very Irish. Although there are stick games across the world, but hurling is definitely a very ancient Irish game. Some people would say rugby is a far more suitable Irish game for the Irish than, than anything. And that's fair enough. You know what I'm getting at. But the, the G is a work of genius. It's a social triumph. It's a huge squabbling confederation of people who can't stand each other. <laughs> and they've made something work. A bit like another institution. Can you think of it? Which has lasted for 2,000 years. <laughs> <laughs> and God alone, as, as, as uh, was it, uh, Hilaire Belloc said, no organisation conducted with such knavish imbecility, unless it was ordained by God, could have survived more than a, you know, a few years. <laughs> Thank God. And it has survived this long. Inherited from a people, a fractious, brilliant, gifted, irascible, impossible little people who never stop fighting among themselves, the Jews, who have also survived alongside us, in spite of our meanness to them on many occasions. And meanness with a capital M. I, I just want to pull this together. The answer to this liquid modernity is to start shipbuilding. The ships will be made of words and relationships. The ribs of the ship will be relationships. They will be friendships that are mutual, interdependent, and reliable. 
There will be situations where a man or woman's word will indeed be their bond. There will be situations where if you mess up, you start again. These ships will be manned by sinners who wish to be saved, by people who don't have the illusion that they can swim forever, which you can't physically and you can't metaphorically in the liquid modernity. And these ships have a purpose. And I remind you at the end of Hilaire Belloc's I wish I had started with this, it has only just come to me now, but I'll, I'll, I'll reprise it again and maybe I'll start with it in the next, the next episode. Hilaire Belloc's lovely ballad to Our Lady of Chestakova, where he talks about Our Lady guiding him to the harbour. He was a great sailor. Mm. And I shall hymn you with a harbour story told. This is the faith that I have held and hold, and this is that in which I mean to die. And he calls her help of the half-defeated. So I guess one of the greatest titles Our Lady has been given in the modern age. And he goes on to go and list the other ones, House of Gold, all those, but he calls her help of the half-defeated, the help of the banjaxed, Our Lady, mother of scum, <laughs> mother of sinners, mother of dangerous people, mother of people who have passed, mother of people wearing jewellery still warm from the bodies of the previous owners. Mothers of, of spivs and chancers and dangerous little people. Mother of people who, whose only recommendation is their determination to survive and they're like a rat jumping at the light. They see a way out. This is the ship which will get to harbour and they'll do anything to get on it. Those are the people who will be saved and not the people who sit around uh, feeling really great about themselves. Now, in the next episode, we'll go on to talk about the dangers of feeling great about yourself, okay? Because as I said in the last episode, there's a great grace in being able to say in liquid modernity, I'm drowning. And to be able to shout out like Thomas, help my unbelief. <laughs> I'd believe in you if I could. That's enough. That's, the church is utterly realistic. She will settle for a sliver of hope and faith that is so thin that Wilkinson's sword couldn't manufacture it. I mean, it is a bl the finest of blades. She will settle for anything. Okay, just the, anything that even glimmers of reconciliation, even glimmers of repentance. She, 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 she'll say, well, we'll take that. The next episode, we'll go on to talk about the harbour for which we are aiming. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Saint Brendan. Pray, Pray for us. us.